This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. U.S. Civilian Harm and Mitigation Response Plan. What is it and what does it propose to do? I'm Lauren Sanders and I'm from the Law and the Future of War program at the University of Queensland. And today we are wrapping up some discussions we've had over our last few episodes talking about civilian harm. We've explored in those previous episodes some of the systemic issues that have been identified through the coalition and US aerial wars in Afghanistan and Iraq in particular, focusing on civilian casualty reports and investigations resulting from those incidents. On 25th of August 2022, the US released its long-awaited Civilian Harm and Mitigation Response Plan, which has been released in part as a result of the public scrutiny of civilian casualty incidences following some of these campaigns. And today we are very fortunate to be speaking with Mark Galasco, who has been intimately involved with this issue over, I'd say, decades, having been engaged in stakeholder engagement with the US DOD during their development of this plan when it was announced on the 27th of January this year. Mark has a very long history of observing and reporting on civilian casualty incidents, using his understanding of the process garnered from his time as a US intelligence analyst with Human Rights Watch as a senior civilian protection officer for UNAMAR, the UN assistance mission in Afghanistan, and as the UN senior military advisor for the Human Rights Council Independent Commission of Inquiry on Libya, where he's investigated civilian casualties while leading a survey of NATO's activities in Libya. He's worked with CNA on civilian harm mitigation and co-hosts his own podcast, Civilian Protection with Civic, which we will put a link to in the show notes because it's really, really great podcast to listen to and I think goes a lot deeper into some of the issues we're going to touch on today. He's been engaged in this particular action plan through his work with the NGO PACS since 2021 and will be talking to us today about the history of the action plan and his views on what it might do to address the causal issues identified across the numerous projects that have been analysing the factors that result in civilian casualties. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is such a deeply important issue, and I really want to thank you for taking this on. Well, thank you for talking to us about your background on it. Noting, of course, it's only just come out, so hot off the presses. So the ability to have gone through the plan, because it's quite a considerable document in detail, has probably been a bit difficult to get across all of the minutiae of the plan. But from a generic perspective, could you tell us what the plan is and why it's so important? So I think folks may be surprised to know that the U.S. has not had a comprehensive civilian casualty policy across the Department of Defense ever. And this is the very first time that they're going to do that. Up until now, all of civilian casualties have been dealt with at the combatant command level. Mm -hmm. And the combatant commands are those geographical and functional commands that the U.S. military has that basically put soldiers and other forces out into the field and deal with them. And You've got, for example, the geographical commands like Central Command, Africa Command, uh, European Command, and then your functional commands like SOCOM, which is a Special Operations Command. And up until now, each of these individual commands in their different area of operations, where it is that they work, they've had their own way of dealing with civilian casualties, some better and some worse. And it's really developed over the past 20 years that there's also been an ebb and flow as there's been a change in the leadership at the command. Sometimes 
they'll be better and sometimes worse. And because of that, really, we have not seen the U.S. get a handle on the civilian harm issue. You know, the, the U.S. has been at war now for the last 20 years throughout Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, you know, you name it, just all over the world. And unfortunately, we see so many civilians being killed in conflict. And this policy for the first time is going to establish a standard across the Department of Defense for all of the military. And it's a really ambitious, but a very comprehensive program with 11 different aspects to it, 11 objectives. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, once this goes into effect, we will see an improvement on not only how civilians are dealt with during the targeting cycle, but also afterwards. So the response, so mitigating civilian harm and also responding to civilian harm. I think those two aspects are something I'd like to deep dive into separately because they have a whole bunch of different um, aspects attached to them as far as how operations are approached in the first instance and then on the back end how investigations and amends are approached from the second perspective. Looking at the first then, you've done some work previously in terms of causative factors contributing to civilian casualties. And I think I've commended to listeners the work of Larry Lewis at CNA in the past on that those causative factors. There were a number of themes identified in terms of causal factors that can contribute to civilian casualty events and causal factors that don't necessarily cost much from an operational perspective to implement. Does the preventative measures in this, uh, this action plan address those issues? Are they tied to the data or do you think that there's a bit more work to do there? Well, the plan itself is really comprehensive, mm -hmm. and I think that it does deal with the causative issues, but there are still a number of details to be dealt with and still quite a few details to be worked out. And I hope we get to that because each of the 11 objectives are very important to the issue of civilian harm mitigation and response, mm -hmm. uh, some of them dealing with it more or less. So when looking at the causative issues, one of the things that people think is the main driver of civilian harm are those killed incidental to military operations. So the idea that people are living near a building that is struck by the military and then they're unfortunately killed. And actually, that's not the main reason why we see civilians die in conflict, particularly from airstrikes and other military operations on the ground. Really, the main reason is misidentification, not understanding who is in an area or why they're there, the number of civilians in an area, the different demographic issues, and identifying you know, someone as, let's say, a lawful target when in fact they're not. And that we can look just directly to the airstrike in Kabul. That was just a year ago, yeah. uh, where you had 10 Afghan civilians that were killed in that drone strike when the US said, you know, hey, this is a righteous strike. We have identified the suicide bomber from Abbey Gate and we're going to take that person out because they're going and they're going to be killing more folks. It was an aid worker, an individual working for a U.S. aid organization who had been moving water and other things, which is just a very unfortunate, it was really unfortunate that, that this happened. But I think it also really forced the U.S. to take a long, deep look, deep, hard look at what's going on. Because up until then, the U.S. was moving forward with this plan to come out with reforms in the targeting conflicts. They're moving forward with what's called a DOTI, which is a Department of Defense instruction. And they were coming out with a DOTI on civilian harm. And we in the NGO community had been working closely with them. So there's an umbrella group called Interaction. Mm -hmm. And within Interaction, you have a number of groups such as PACS, Civic, 
Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, Air Wars, a whole host of us. And we had been working very closely with the Pentagon on trying to get them to move this instruction on civilian harm forward. After the airstrike in Kabul, the Dodi basically sat there very quietly. There were some clarion calls from those in the NGO community for the U.S. to put the Dodi out as soon as possible because the reforms obviously were very needed because civilian casualties were continuing to be a, a vexing issue for, for the U.S. military and others. And it sat there. And we wondered, you know, what's going on? Why is it sitting there? And then what happened was the Secretary of Defense came out with, with a memo on January 26th uh, of this year and said, hey, listen, you know, we are going to take this incredibly seriously. I am going to create a group. It's going to be working in the Pentagon for the next 90 days to put together a very specific action plan that will improve the DOTI that we're already working on based on inputs from NGOs and others, and also from the military and a number of important stakeholders like RAND, for example, which mm -hmm. conducted an independent investigation and put out an important paper. Center for Naval Analysis with Larry Lewis, who really, Larry, is the leading individual in our field. And looking at those things and then putting together a far more serious document. And I think that's what we have now. You know, something that looks at all of the different aspects that contribute to civilian harm and tries to improve on it. Mm -hmm. So for example, if we look at the issue of misidentification, you know, within the civilian harm mitigation and response plan, it talks about the different issues that lead to misidentification. So one of the leading causes of misidentification for the military to identify a civilian as a lawful military target is cognitive bias. You know, that's when you look at something and you just take your own personal beliefs and you see everything that you think should be, no matter what it is that you look at. So, for example, during this targeting of this car in Kabul, the targeteers were looking and observing and saw this individual moving things out of the trunk and they thought that it was, well, it's explosives. But the reality is at any point during the day in any city in the world, there's a lot of people moving stuff out of their trunk. And so you need to really push against these kind of biases and try to better understand why it is that this is happening. So for example, in the action plan, there's one thing that they're doing directly addresses, and that is adding red teaming to the targeting process. That's having an, a group sit down as part of the targeting process and representing civilians or representing an opposition and pushing back saying, okay, why do you think that that is a military signature and not a civilian? Hey, that could just be people driving around. What specific information do you have that supports that this could be a lawful target? So really trying to dig down into a lot of these issues that cause problems in targeting and end up in civilian deaths. I saw that and read that with interest because whenever I see red teaming, I think, but we already have intelligence analysts in the military. Isn't it their job to be red teaming everything that the blue plan comes up with? But this is different from that, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the intelligence community puts an awful lot of time and effort and resources into understanding the enemy and the enemy's environment, but they don't and haven't put that kind of effort into understanding the, the civilian environment. And so Hopefully this red teaming and some of the other aspects of the civilian harm mitigation response action plan will really address these issues and the shortcomings and will add to what's done in the joint targeting process and really help 
put to put these you know solid reforms in. But there's a really important thing though that you need to understand. This action plan does not mean that civilians will not die in America's wars. Mm. This action plan means that fewer may die if all of these policies and procedures are put into place. This action plan means that the response after civilian harm happens will be improved and that the military will have the tools that it needs. But as long as the U.S. government decides to solve its problems with high explosives, with bombing people, we'll still see civilians die in conflict. The object here is to see fewer die and to have a better response when they do. So turning then to that post-incident response, because as you've pointed out, this is not a plan to prevent the conduct of operations. It's not preventing military operations from occurring because if there is a resort to this kind of violence, there is unfortunately a broader strategic requirement to look into the ISIS example to achieve a particular military outcome, which is achieved through acts of calculated violence and resourcing those acts of violence, where most of the time, or that the intent is that most of the time that they will be executed against combatants or people who are taking part in hostilities, but the focus of reduction of harm to civilians is not going to eradicate civilians being caught up in hostilities and the effects on civilians in hostilities. So when that does happen, what does this action plan contemplate in terms of amends and in terms of investigations in particular? Well, you know, that's really the two main areas of concern for me. And I'm so heartened to see that in this plan. In fact, you know, when we were working with the Pentagon on this, they initially told us that amends would not be included in the plan mm. because it was so complex and they thought that it really needed a separate policy. And so we were quite heartened to see that they included it in the plan. And amends are those responses to civilian harm incidents that recognize the harm that's been caused. And they can come in many forms. It does not necessarily mean that it's economic. There can be monies. It can be apologies. And it can be a number of different non-monetary recompense. So for example, let's say that you're operating in a country where Al-Shabaab is, for example. Mm -hmm. And if you were to provide people with money, you know, the Al-Shabaab just come in and, and take it from them. So perhaps there are other things that can be done. There can be livestock given to people. There can be other forms of recompense provided to them. You know, you can deal in certain countries with assisting people with rebuilding their homes or really even just sometimes recognition. I can't tell you how many times I interview civilians that have had loss in warfare and really what they most ask for is recognition. So PAX has been working in the city of Hawija in Iraq Mm -hmm. There had been an airstrike back in 2015 and a cover-up by the Dutch government. About 70 Iraqi civilians had been killed. And going back and meeting with them and working through the issues with them, sure, there was the need for rebuilding in the city. There was a massive bomb factory destroyed. And because of problems in the targeting process, they didn't really consider the explosives within the building, which led to such a, a huge loss of civilian life. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that the Iraqis really said was, you know, money aside, we want recognition. We want an apology from the Dutch government. We want to have people reach out to us and say, you matter. And that's really struck me. And so when people push back on this sometimes and say, well, you know, Mark, amends means people just are in it for the money and they're going to lie about their harm or they're going to make things up. 
The reality is it's very seldom that we actually see people asking for a monetary response. Now, the investigation side, that's a whole nother area. And that mm -hmm. is, for me, is most interesting because I was a, at the Defense Intelligence Agency from 96 until 2003 after the Operation Iraqi Freedom, where I was doing quite a bit of targeting in that conflict. And the first time I went on the ground for the military, I was on a battle damage assessment team in Kosovo in mm -hmm. August of 99. And I was going site to site with my clipboard and my list of targets. And I would go to a site and say, okay, yes, we hit this. Yes, the munition functioned correctly or it didn't function correctly. And then I would see the civilian harm issue. And I asked my boss, so where do I put the CivCAS? How do I do that? And he said, well, you know, we don't do that, but we should, right? Shouldn't we? I mean, that, that was my response. We really should. And the military has done such a poor job over the last 20 years on this. It's been really quite shocking to me. There was a time during the war in Afghanistan where ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force, which was the NATO mission in Afghanistan, was really the gold standard in dealing with civilian harm issues. They conducted investigations on the ground. They made a civilian casualty mitigation team, which was a, a team of about a dozen people that analyzed all of the instances of civilian harm, where it was occurring, tried to pull out lessons learned. They worked closely with us in the UN. I was at uh, the UN at the time leading the Protection of Civilians Office. And we really worked through this civilian casualty problem. and. Mm -hmm were able from 2008 to 2011 to reduce civilian casualties from airstrikes, for example, by over 60%. Which is Through a huge. number of lessons learned just by, it's, it's massive, really massive. And just by looking at the data and doing solid analysis and making changes, right? And that was the gold standard. Unfortunately, things changed. There was a, a change administration in my country. President Trump came in, decided that we were gonna take the gloves off the military laws were holding back the fight, right? We're holding us back from destroying the Taliban. That was the idea. As an interjection, I think all of the data shows that the law was not the problem with, with any of those issues, but that's a, another side point. Absolutely. And so we saw civilian casualties, unfortunately, go through the roof. Mm -hmm. And why? All of the civilian harm mitigation procedures that NATO had put into place were then removed. And it really showed we went from an average of, let's just take airstrikes, for example, of about 100 civilians killed annually in Afghanistan, up to 700 killed in 2019, which was just massive. When the civilian harm mitigation procedures were in place, the U.S. was able to have a handle, you know, NATO had a handle on civilian casualties. When the mission in NATO changed to Operation Resolute Support, to the train and assist mission, removed all of those policies, the tactics, techniques, and procedures to minimize harm, we saw civilian deaths go through the roof, right? And what did they do? They had the 12-person investigative team drop to about two. Mm -hmm. They stopped conducting investigations in the field. They stopped the, the lessons learned work that was going on. And that was hugely problematic. They also, whenever there were issues and instances of civilian casualties, there was an incredible amount of just distrust you know, well, people are lying, this isn't true, or the press is inflating civilian casualties. And I have to say, I'm so thoroughly impressed with what the action plan has put forward in some of these issues. So for example, they are now stating that they are going to have a route for external sources to provide information 
across the board to DOD. So those could be civilians that are in the country saying, hey, mm-hmm. you, you've killed my family member, mm-hmm. or it can be NGOs, or it can be the press. Yep. Additionally, they are now putting forward this new guidance where the standard for assessing civilian harm will now be more likely than not. So when there is a report, they're going to take it very seriously. I think that's important. And they also discuss some of the law of war issues Mm -hmm. within the policy as far as accountability goes. So I really believe that if they're able to put all of this in place, the investigation, the improved investigations, the amends, I think we'll see some great improvements. So I guess that's the critical issue now, isn't it, is the resourcing and the adherence to this plan. Is there anything else that came out with it that indicates how it's going to be resourced? Because as we know, every military is asked to do more with less because that's the nature of government funding and just demands of where the world is at. Is there any indication that it's actually going to be resourced or there's a commitment to resourcing this plan to enact it? Yeah, so... The first thing we have to understand is this is a plan, Mm -hmm. right? It has to be implemented. It has to be resourced with people and with money, right? Nothing's going to happen if there aren't funds there. We know that. And we in the NGO community have been working very closely with the U.S. Congress to get the money put aside for this. Uh, DOD is going to put in some funds and Congress has now put funds into the National Defense Authorization Act, which is going to ensure that the money is set aside for this, but that's a huge issue. And just last week, the day after the plan came out, several U.S. congresspersons, such as Representative Sarah Jacobs, Tom Malinowski, and others, announced that they're creating a new Congressional Caucus on Civilian Harm wow. so that they can advocate for the issue and so that they can make sure that this plan will be put into effect and properly resourced. And the resourcing part of the plan, I have to admit, is really quite impressive. If you look at it, for example, 16 full-time person in CENTCOM, 11 in European command, just massive numbers of personnel being put Mm. out there. The intelligence community, Defense Intelligence Agency, for example, 15 people. Uh, The headquarters element, 38 people. So some serious, serious resourcing. But not just that, but also the creation of a new center of excellence on civilian harm. And I think that's really important, not only from the operational perspective, but also from kind of an academic and learning perspective, right? So that you have a place where people can come together with expertise in this and say, these are the issues that that you're grappling with. Also, the way that DOD is putting forward this new center of excellence, it's not only going to have an academic aspect to it where there's learning, lessons learned that gets pushed out, but also an operational aspect to it. So this idea that, for example... If there is a conflict that comes up, they can surge personnel from the center of excellence to go there and give additional individuals to, you know, laser focus into the concern of civilian harm. Hey, you know, there's one thing we actually didn't do that I think is actually is pretty important. We're talking about civilian harm mitigation, but we haven't defined it. Mm, true. Like, so, so what is civilian harm mitigation? I mean, we bandy it about like everyone knows what we're talking about, mm-hmm. but. So while compliance with international humanitarian law, you know, the Geneva Conventions, is foundational to the protection of civilians, civilian harm mitigation isn't simply a matter of just avoiding violations of the law of war. So Larry Lewis, Dr. Larry Lewis at the Center of the Naval Analysis has put together a really solid definition stating that civilian harm mitigation is a systematic approach 
to identifying and reducing risks to civilians from military operations to the maximum extent feasible. It is an active protection of civilians. You're not just being passive. You're not just seeing where civilians are and passively putting that into some kind of targeting scheme, but you're actively taking steps to protect civilians throughout the entire conflict from the acquisition of intelligence through the targeting cycle afterwards, lessons learned to inform future targets to the investigations, the amends, red teaming, putting this into doctrine, creating a center of excellence. These are all active things that the U.S. will be doing to mm-hmm. promote the protection of civilians. So you make a good point in terms of the protection of civilians in this case is beyond what the law currently requires. So uh, laws of armed conflict, international humanitarian law, requires all feasible precautions to be taken during attacks. The central tenet of IHL is the protections of civilians from the harm of conflict, but also provides certain protections for combatants and those that are taking part in hostilities. But this plan is going beyond the strict legal obligations that are in place on a state, doesn't it? It does, but let's recognise that IHL is a very low bar, Mm -hmm. okay? It is the least that a country has to do to ensure that civilians are protected in a conflict, right? Like distinction of proportionality. So not directly targeting civilians, like, oh my God, how are we gonna protect civilians? We'll not directly target them. Okay, that's a really low bar, (laughs) Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Proportionality, okay, so whatever we're gonna do we're going to make sure that what we do is not so harmful to civilians that it is worse than whatever military gain we're going to get. All right. So you're not going to nuke a city to kill the sniper. Right. Mm. So let's just recognize, first of all, that IHL is a low bar. So already the US, Australia, other countries all do things that are above what IHL mm-hmm. requires. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they have policies and procedures in place. They do things such as observe people over time with pattern of life assessments. They have collateral damage estimates. They have judge advocate generals, military lawyers within the targeting cells. They do quite a bit, but they've never had that civilian environment, civilian lens within the targeting procedures. And this is going to do that. And it's going to do it writ large. And the other thing is, it's really interesting. This is going to have huge implications on U.S. allies. Mm. I look at, for Mm. example, NATO, Australia, uh, allies like that. This is going to have huge implications. Why? Because there are two sections within the plan that directly deal with operations with allies. Under section nine, that deals with security cooperation. Whenever the U.S. security agreed to go and, and assist them in some way. So, for example, providing weapons or training, this will ensure that whoever it is that we're providing security cooperation to has to have some level of civilian harm mitigation policies in place. And then even more to the point, in all multinational operations, this will require U.S. allies to have civilian harm mitigation policies in place. So this is going to mean that countries like France, Germany, the U.K., Australia have these policies in place if they're going to be operating with the U.S. And guess what? They do that every day. Mm. So this is going to have some real impact. Yeah, I think 
aligning some of those policies from a coalition perspective is going to be quite interesting. You spoke previously about how amends was something that was questionable about being included in this plan because of its complexity. And of course, when you multiply the idea of monetary compensation across a number of different domestic legal regimes, it becomes infinitely more complex. So does the plan go as far as, I guess, specifying the expectations of what those coalition plans would have in them? Or is it a more generic requirement to undertake a commitment to civilian harm mitigation from those coalition partners? Yeah. So at this point, and one of the criticisms that I've had of the plan and others have had is that it is fairly generic in some areas. Some Mm -hmm. things are very specific, you know, the staffing, et cetera, but some things it's a little bit like, and then magic happens. And so we need to find out what those details are. The details really haven't been put out yet. And, you know, you raise an important point. So for example, when I was in Afghanistan, we would often say that a civilian will receive amends really depending upon where they live mm-hmm. and who it is that harmed them. Yeah. So for example, if you were in, in UK territory in the West or German territory in the North or American territory in the South of Afghanistan, you would be treated very differently because of different legal regimes. Like for example, the US is not party to the Rome statute, others are. And so you didn't have that true standard. And so it really depended upon you know where you were and, and who shot you, for example. Mm. But this hopefully will harmonize that and will allow the different legal standards to come together and create a a more uniform policy. But you're right. One of the big problems that we see looking at the plan is that thus far, some of the details are not specified. And, And that's something that we really need to see far more details. I mean, I guess from a strategic planning perspective, that's not unexpected. This is indicating a commitment from the US to implement all of these various initiatives. And it's going to take some time and effort, I suspect, to nut out the further details of how this is actually going to work. As far as the implementation of the plan is concerned, is there a timeline or is there any information about how that detail is going to be progressed or released? And you mentioned the resourcing of a headquarters and a center of excellence. Have they been allocated specific tasks in that regard? Yes, actually, this is a phased plan. And the DOD has put out a plan that goes out to fiscal year 2025. Mm -hmm. So the idea is by 25, the plan will be fully in effect. And they list within the the action plan, which is available online, uh, they list the different steps that should be taken year to year, which is great. It gives us a blueprint for what what they're going to be doing moving forward. So at least we have an idea of where it's going. That said, this is a plan, right? Now this plan has come out. It has started a 90 day clock. The 90 day clock is for the actual policy to come out. And I know Mm -hmm. that sounds really archaic, but you know, this is the way that governments and militaries work and and absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge bureaucracy. And so it's just got to get stuff within the actual cement of the building. And so one of the concerns that we in the NGO community have is that because of politics, It's imperative that this plan gets cemented within the bureaucracy of the Pentagon within the next year, before U.S. elections in 2024, so that it cannot be taken away, so they cannot be pulled out. And we're really looking for the Pentagon to get this DOTI, this Department of Defense instruction, which is the policy, is going to come out within the next 90 days. It's, from what I understand, it is currently at USDP, the U.S. Department of Defense's Office for Policy, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy's office, waiting for signature, then to go to Secretary Austin's desk for signature. 
and then it'll be implemented. Once the policy is done, then the plan can begin implementation and funding can begin. And really, that's what we're looking at, a 2025 end date for end state for it to come into effect, but it is phased. So we're going to see a number of actions come out over the next few years. We're recording this interview on the 30th of August, 2022, which is a significant date because it marks a year to the day that the last American C-17 left Afghanistan. One of the frequent reflections on the civilian casualties in that conflict was a lack of political will to do anything more about it in terms of implementing these mitigation policies. You mentioned the need to cement this to protect it from political changing political will in the future. When we say political will, it's a pretty broad brush, a comment to say there's no political will to stop civilians being harmed in these conflicts. What do we actually mean when we're saying that? So there are those that believe that putting restrictions on the military hampers their effectiveness. There are those that believe that we are handcuffing those that are out fighting for freedom, you name it. And we're holding them back from conducting military operations that are lawful and that ultimately need to happen. The reality is these are things that people in the military are asking for. People are calling for. I don't know anyone in the military that I've ever worked with. And I've been working either with or in conjunction with the military in some way for the last 20 years. No one wants to kill civilians. Everyone wants to protect civilians. You know, that's why you're there. If you're not there to protect civilians, why are you there in the the first place? And I think it's really quite astonishing when you look at all of these procedures that will be put into place, I think it's actually going to help the military in their operations. I mean, let's, let's just take an example. So for example, one of the issues that I often raise is collateral damage estimation. Whenever a target is going to be struck, you have what's called a collateral damage estimate that comes out. That is the anticipated number of civilians that are going to be harmed in the strike, killed and injured. Based upon that, that's part of the legal analysis that goes into proportionality analysis that the lawyers take into account for whether or not they're going to support the strike. The problem is this number that's pushed out, whether the number is 30 civilians or one civilian, whatever the number is, it's never validated. Okay, no one ever goes out and checks that that was actually correct which is astonishing to me. If you're basing part of the legal analysis of a strike on a number that's put out by a model and you never check to see if the model is accurate, well, what is the use of that number to begin with, right? And so it's very possible that the military at times is using less force than it could because they don't know. Maybe they could be using more force in certain instances. And so this is going to help them in their decision-making. It's going to help them in application of force issues. It's going to help them in post-strike instances. I mean, let's take a look at Afghanistan and all the discussions on, quote unquote, winning hearts and minds and the counterinsurgency. And how many many people were then came after uh, U.S. and coalition people to kill them because their families were armed. And so this is going to actually assist military in their operations. And it does not handcuff them at all. In fact, I think that it gives them far more tools to better do their jobs. And I guess then from that political perspective down to the operational perspective, you spoke about the idea of a handcuffing military action. And I think there's some really good data that demonstrates that that's not the case when these kinds of specific policies are put in place. And I understand that the Tiger team that was set up to create this plan had access to that data and had regard to those statistics. 
What about then the risk to own forces by this kind of an action plan? Is there anything in the plan that you think causes increased risk to own forces? Because that's another significant criticism of this kind of of action, isn't it? Well, look, military operations are by definition risky and force protection is clearly an issue. Honestly, looking at the 11 points in this plan, I do not see anything that is going to increase risk to forces. You can still conduct operations. You can still protect your soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines while protecting civilians. It's not an either or. You can do both. And Mm -hmm. I don't see why anyone would push back on this plan. I got to tell you, it's, it's quite amazing. We in the NGO groups, you know, we were actually called in by the Pentagon and given a briefing on this on Wednesday of last week, mm-hmm. like before the plan actually was published. And when the briefing was done, we all got together to have a discussion about what we were told. And there weren't a lot of details in it, but there were quite a few. And they walked us through the 11 points and what they wanted to do with the 11 points. And we all just looked at each other and said, this is everything we've asked for what's wrong? You know, there's got to be something wrong, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we had provided, and it's available online on the Interaction website, uh, we had provided a a laundry list of asks to the military, things that were important, everything from improved leadership, having, you know, senior leadership, putting it into doctrine, standardizing data management. I mean, can you imagine they don't have standardized databases for civilian harm at all? So standardizing data management, improving investigations, having amends, all of these different things. And it's all in this plan. And I'm very skeptical by nature. And it's... I mean, you've come from a bureaucracy, you you have to be, right? (laughs) And we've been burned in the past. I mean, in the last Mm -hmm. 20 years, there have been a number of times when we've been told, hey, you know, we're going to change the way that we're dealing with targeting and with civilians, and that it's never been improved. And this time, I think we may have gotten it. This, This looks different. It sounds different. And if they're able to resource it and get it moving and put it in quickly, I think it's really going to save lives. Which is something that we've been talking to people over the last couple of years about these issues. And there wasn't a lot of hope, I think, out there in the NGO community or the research community in terms of action being taken, such significant action being taken in terms of addressing these issues. All that said, this is a watershed plan if it is, in fact, implemented. If you were writing the plan, if you were signing off on the plan, I know you haven't had a long time to digest the detail of it, but what would you change? Well, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it, right? Uh, I don't want to just sit back and say, oh my God, it's so good. I'm so excited about it. Uh, yeah, They need more detail in this thing. Yeah, uh, There's too many parts of the plan where, and magic happens. So it's great to say, for example, We are going to have a method for civilians within a conflict to reach out to DOD and let us know if there's been a civilian harm incident. Well, great. How are you going to do that? It doesn't say. So things like that, we really need to get the details. Where is the center of excellence going to be housed? How is the center of excellence going to operate? Is it going to be that one-stop shop for everybody where we all interface with? How is it going to put lessons learned out to general organizations? How in multinational operations is the U.S. going to hold its allies to account for following civilian harm mitigation? Is this just going to be a, yeah, we've got this, or there are going to be specific requirements? It's not spelled out. So you know, the one thing I would have changed if I had had the ability, I would have had more details. But let's also recognize that this Tiger team had 90 days. Mm. This thing was put together in 90 days. That said, that's really impressive. 
Now let's see this thing put into, into action. Yeah. There's the three-year runway now to see what's going to happen in terms of implementation of this plan. And I think it'd be really great to circle back with you in three years time to see how effective this plan has actually been implemented with that resource runway. I even would like to circle back before that. The NGOs, we are going to be on the Pentagon pretty hard. We're going to ride them and make sure that this thing gets put into place and is properly resourced and staffed. Uh, There's going to be an awful lot of pressure. That said, we sat back, we had a glass of wine all together and toasted the plan and said, okay, this is a great accomplishment. But uh, that kind of glow is worn off. And now we're ready to push forward and get this thing put into place and really, you know, make sure that it's applied. Because when it comes down to it, there are civilians dying in wars right now, Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. And because of a lack of proper policies and standards, more are going to be killed than would be had this plan in effect. I look at we're a year out from the Kabul strike. Mm -hmm. Had this been in place prior to the Kabul strike, would that family still be alive? And I certainly hope so. And so that's why it's so important that we put this out. Very impressive work by everyone who's been involved in getting it to this point. And as you say, it's so important that it now gets implemented. If someone wanted to read more on this particular topic, in addition to the issues that you've mentioned thus far, what would you recommend? Also noting you've got a a great article on Lawfare that summarizes the 11 action points. So put that up as one of the first resources so people can, can get a quick grasp of what those 11 action points are. But what would be your recommendations to get up to speed on this particular issue? Hey, thanks so much for plugging my, my law for article. So there are actually, there are three things that I would recommend folks look at. Uh, one is at the Lieber Institute, which is West Point's website. They have an article called An Improved Approach to Civilian Harm Mitigation and Response, which was written by the authors of this plan. And it really goes through their thinking on how they put this plan together and what it's going to do. So I think it's important to understand their perspective on it. Secondly is the RAND report that came out this year that really spoke to all of the individual problems that this independent quasi-government organization put together in their analysis. And if you go point by point through RAND's analysis and their recommendations, it reads very closely to what the NGOs said and to what this plan does. So the RAND report, for example, calls for a center of excellence. It calls for red teaming. It calls for standardized data management. It calls for improved investigations. It calls for amends. All of these things. I think the RAND report is really critical. And then finally, just to really better understand the issue, I think folks should go to the civic website, which is civilians in conflict. And they have a couple of reports on civilian harm mitigation One that speaks directly to the problems in investigations and amends on the ground. And they do an incredible historical look at what's gone on in the last 20 years and where the problems were. And then they have further reports on amends and how a military might put out or might better apply civilian harm mitigation in their operations. And, you know, they work closely with the African Union, for example, so it's not just Western militaries. And so I think those three, Civic, the Lieber Institute, and RAND would be really good places to start. So in 2001, dear friend of mine, Marla Ruzica, went to Afghanistan and she saw firsthand the problem of civilian harm, civilians being killed in conflict, and that the US government was not doing anything about it. 
In 2003, I met her for the first time in Iraq, where she saw the continuing problem. She created her organization, Civic, Civilians in Conflict, and she worked really hard to prove that while the U.S. military said, we don't do body counts, that in fact, they did. And she had gone down to the Green Zone, met with an American general, and got the papers that proved that the U.S. was counting civilian deaths. And she took that and she was going to come back with it and use that as ammunition to really get the U.S. to change policy. And she was able to get $3 million fund put aside for civilians that are harmed. That's an annual fund that exists right now. Unfortunately, Marla was killed in 2005 in the suicide bombing in Iraq. As she left that general's office, she was driving behind a convoy with uh, Faiz Ali Salim, who unfortunately people sometimes forget he was also killed. And uh, the two of them died. So she never got to see this plan, but her work really started this. And it really shows that one person truly can make a difference in the world. Because now 20 years later, we're seeing the fruits of that seed that she planted. And people are going to survive. We're going to see fewer civilian casualties, better post-event outcomes because of the work that she started. And I just wanted to, to just say her name and say just how important Marla has been to all of this. Thank you so much for ending on that note, because I think it's really important to remember that, yes, people can make a difference and to remember the sacrifices that a large number of people have made to get to this point. Thank you so much for your time this evening for you, this morning for me. Really appreciate your reflections on this report. And as you say, it's really promising. Now let's see it get implemented. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you caring for this issue. And you're absolutely right. I mean, we've got a plan. But now I want to see it in concrete. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. 